welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. Thanks so much for the ways that you offer space and energy to each other. We do this each and every week, and it's always amazing to see so many people sort of connecting and saying hello. And we trust also, if you're just new in our community, that's always a space that we can we know can be a little bit tough to negotiate at times, but we hope you can sort of lean in with us and find space to be welcoming, because that's one of the great joys of coming together. And for those of you that I haven't met personally before, I'll just mention it again. I said it a second ago. My name is Scott, and I serve here in Inglewood as our parish pastor. And as we're getting going today, I just actually want to make a brief mention of the fact that our community's annual general meeting will be happening on March 11th, and that's going to be hosted over at our Kensington Parish. And that meeting is actually open to the public, and you can preview all of the relevant documents that get put up at commons.church slash AGM. I don't know if there's anything there right now, but you can sort of get ready for the meeting and check in there if you need. We also want everybody to know that while that meeting is public, it's only members who get to participate in the decisions about financials and about the additional motions and about about the appointment of new board members. If you are already a member with us, we invite you to activate your membership. You can do so at that same website, commons.church AGM, or you can go to the role that's at the Connection Center anytime between now and the beginning of March, and you can just initial, let us know that you're in for another year. That would be great. And we say all these things again, because this is just a quick reminder that if you are interested in membership, even just curious about it, there's no expectations, you can work through our first steps classes in, in an order that works for you, and you can decide on a way to move forward with us, and we really would trust and hope that you would choose to do that. Now, that brings us back to this conversation that we have started 2020 with, that we have called Swipe Right, and in it we've taken up this image of 21st century relationships in all of their technological glory, and how connections form in our time and space with a simple tap on a screen. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been spending some time thinking about how really, it doesn't matter whether you're using an app or a site in your search for love these days. Maybe you've been in a committed relationship for years. Maybe you're finding your way forward in a sense of sexual identity. Or maybe you're somewhere in between in all of that. The point really isn't that there's a, or the, the point actually is, rather, that there's no quick way to shortcut to the kinds of connections that so many of us long for. Which isn't to say that your relationship needs to look like anybody else's, or that it needs to be as long-lasting as anybody else's, or that you need to go about finding and procuring intimate moments in any particular way, or at least that's not really what this series is about. See, we've focused our conversation on these three different themes, how our brains and our souls and our bodies are all part of how we search for and we build intimacy in the world. And at the end of the day, we're pretty sure that there's some wisdom in this tradition that we participate in. There's wisdom for each of us as we find our way. Which is why in week one, we talked a little bit about how if we're going to use the scriptures as a guide and a source for clarity for us in our relationships, we're going to have to come clean about how difficult it is to extract a clear and a concise and a uniform sexual ethic from the ancient texts. Because so many of the ancient stories are actually far less concerned with telling us what the rules are for our lives. They're not interested in telling us who we can hook up with and when and how often. 
No, in fact, actually, they're far more concerned with revealing how God has a way of redeeming and healing and restoring us in and through all kinds of intimate encounters and the aftermath that sometimes follows them. And we see this in Jesus clearly, how he encourages us to value each other while admitting that sometimes things don't always work out between us because just, or just because we've shared intimate moments. And also where Jesus seems to give us this ethic of care and responsibility, hoping that we would find it to be a guide. And we're going to actually circle back to Jesus' thoughts later, so stu- stay tuned for that. But... We then took a next step last week, and we looked at the story of Jesus and this Samaritan woman in the Gospel of John. And this story is a, of a, or it's a story that focuses on their rendezvous by a well. And in this meetup, it becomes quite clear how Jesus is covering all kinds of distance to make this meeting happen. And Bobby used this imagery so well, I think, inviting us to consider all the ways that truly meaningful relationships are the ones that ask us to cover distance, doing the hard work of building connection with another person. And part of that work asks us to take stock of our souls, to attend to the center of our being, where we don't just try to find the religious parameters or patterns that are going to make it easy to take our relationships to the next level, and where we don't just pretend that we're only bodies with desires that others can help us with for the night. More on bodies in a second. That's actually where we're headed today. No, Bobby said, we have a tendency to divide people and connections into categories, but she suggested, what if God's love to us actually comes through all relationships where friends and colleagues and mentors and adversaries and a myriad of attractive and interesting and compelling people that we cross paths with, how each of these has the potential to make us more soulful, especially if we do the work to be self-aware and we honor the commitments that we've made to those we love and we respect ourselves. Now, having retraced our steps a little bit, we're going to finish this conversation up today. But before we do that, I'm going to invite you to just pray with me for a moment, center ourselves. Join me now. God, you are creator, you are rescuer and comforter. In so many ways, we find you in this world. And we ask that you would guide us now as we come again to ancient text and to wisdom that's carried to us from long ago. And we confess in this moment that we bear your image with brains and bodies and souls that reveal your character in all our daily workings. This is why we ask that you would help us to see your character and to trace its contours today and help us to see ourselves as we do that that we are known and that we are profoundly loved. We ask this now in the name of Christ who teaches us to know your true nature. Amen. Okay, so this morning we're going to talk a little bit about bodies and to do so we're going to explore some dichotomies where rules come from and imagination is power and I'm going to just try and plug this in and out again. Is that okay, Tim? We'll see if we can get these screens working for you. Somebody's already having a hard time. 
We are not above technical difficulties. I think the just give me one second. I'm gonna try one more time here, Tim, okay? not coming through on your end, hey? Okay. Oh. So let me see. Maybe we should have prayed for my computer. <laughs> I feel like... Okay. Well, can you just throw up the slide? Yeah, there we go. That's unfortunate, because I have some, uh, some, some, <laughs> some pictures and some graphs for you. No, I don't, but <laughs> not, in, not in this series. <laughs> All right, let me just get set up here, and we'll try it again. <laughs> I just actually joked with my daughter, who's, how old are you, 13? I said, how, how do you feel about your dad standing at the front, front of the room talking about this stuff? And she didn't answer me, so I'm not sure, not sure how we're going to do. <laughs> All right. All right, so again, we're going to talk about bodies today, and to do so, we're going to talk about dichotomies, we're going to talk about where rules come from, and we're going to talk about imagination as power. And to do this, we're actually going to jump to a couple of places in the text, so I'm going to invite you to try and stay with me and track with me, and to start, we're actually going to head back to the Song of Songs for a moment. This collection of erotic Hebrew poetry that's right in the middle of our Bibles. And what's interesting is that it often stays there. Many of us don't even go there. And as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, there is some steamy content in this poetry. And it's so steamy, in fact, that some early Christian commentators treated this text like it was a hot potato. And to deal with it, they would quote this obscure Jewish text that told people that they shouldn't read the Song of Songs until they were at least 30 years old. And I was like, 30? I mean, this raises all kinds of questions for me. Like, did the early church leaders think that people just didn't have sex or desire after 30? Did they really think that people shouldn't read their Bibles until 30? Or did they really think that just by telling people to live in their parents' basements, it would all be okay? Right? Truth be told, this story sounds an awful lot like the way parents joke about how their kids will be locked in the house and won't date till they're 30, which I have said in jest, but it's in jest because, of course, this kind of response to erotic poetry is ridiculous. And part of what it reveals, too, is how, at least in our tradition, we really haven't been comfortable with our bodies and ourselves as sexual beings, and we haven't been for a long time. Last week, Bobby referenced how ancient Greek philosophy believed that human experience was defined by this dichotomy of psyche and soma, or mind and body in English. And this isn't an intro philosophy course, so we aren't going to deep dive this, but what you need to know is that by the time of Jesus and his followers, this mind-body perspective was part of the surrounding Greco-Roman worldview. And this is why we see the Apostle Paul, who we're going to talk about in a minute, we see how Paul is regularly confronting ideas from a movement called Gnosticism, which taught, among other things, that human bodies are divine, or sorry, human beings are divine souls that have been trapped in bodies by a malevolent deity. And this is a picture in which bodies are the things that hold us back. And they trap us and they deceive us and they manipulate us. And that it's our inner life, our soul, that really matters. 
And what's interesting is how this just doesn't mesh with the truth claims of the Song of Songs. These poems are so hot and so explicit, and yet they're so embedded in the Hebrew imagination of what it means to be wise, body-wise even. See, because right from the onset, the ancient authors speak of sexual love and experience in a deeply embodied, sensory way. The poem begins with a young woman speaking. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine, which I'm sure some people would take exception with, but anyways. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you. Let's, let's hurry, she says. And there's some urgency there, and we learn why. Because a little later, she says, My perfume spread its fragrance in the room. My beloved is to me like a package of myrrh resting between my breasts. To which he replies, How beautiful you are. How beautiful. Your eyes are like doves. And there. He goes again with his ill-timed wildlife references, which you might remember from a couple weeks ago. But anyways, as we noted in week one, what we see here in this text is this profound representation of mutual encounter and mutual pleasure, where the poetry isn't just another version of love as defined by the male gaze, where both partners see and seek the other. And, as scholars note, there's this deep somatic power in their description of one another, where senses of sight and gentle touch and intimate aroma and the sound of tender voice and measured breath, these are named and they are spelled out for us as the reader, where bodily senses are the carriers of wisdom. And how is this? Well, as scholar F. Scott Spencer points out, we really begin to grasp the insight of these poems when we compare them with imagery in other Hebrew wisdom literature. For example, how in Proverbs 7, there's this image or picture of a wayward or a seductive woman, as she's called. She's an analogy for how youthful and sexual desire can become an issue for some of us. And how these powers that she have, they, they lure a vulnerable young man with seductive words and a perfumed bed, which are also images that are marked by this sensory language. And to be clear, before I go on talking about this, we need to unmask the unfair and inappropriate gendering of sexual temptation here, where the feminine is seen as being evil and ensnaring, and the male is vulnerable and susceptible. And this is, quite frankly, a lie. And it's a biased illusion that can distract us from the sustained male practices of violence and possessiveness and control over female bodies in every culture, in every time period, full stop. Now, having said that, what makes the Song of Songs so profound is how it tells its story of bodies and beauty and longing and experience. And it tells this story without a hint of death or deception, with a tone that is thoroughly exuberant, jubilant, and intoxicating, to quote one scholar, where bodies come together. Yes, they do. But then also sometimes they don't. And no one's trapped and no one's restricted. No one's left feeling like they're being used for somebody else's benefit. And that is wisdom that we find here. And this is wisdom that we all need. 
See, because whether you're involved with somebody right now and you're figuring out how to love each other mutually, or maybe you live with someone and you're trying to figure out what sexual connection looks like now, the times have changed and your bodies have changed. Maybe you grapple with your longing because you're not in a relationship where you can feel honored and respected. Or we also realize that maybe you're asexual or aromantic and you don't feel seen or known in these kinds of texts or descriptions at all. Whatever your story, the wisdom that comes to us in this ancient poetry is that our bodies can be a source of good. A source of goodness that pushes back against ancient philosophy and controlling religious restrictions and the weight of shame that we sometimes pick up because of some experience we've had. Which opens you up to the truth that arrives in the story of God in Christ. Because if... As Luke Timothy Johnson contends, if in Jesus the privileged arena of divine disclosure is the human body, then we need to do away with dichotomies that label our bodies as profane and our beliefs as sacred. And instead, we need to embrace a life in which our desires and our sexual experiences, or our lack of them, Our longings, our expectations, and our explorations, these have the potential to lead us into wise living, into full living, maybe even the kind of living that Jesus called eternal and promised us. Which, as good as that sounds, it still leaves us having to find our way in the world, right? I mean, most of us can admit that our search for intimacy hasn't always led us into bright, airy spaces. There's plenty of awkward moments, rejections, and missed opportunities to go around. And I mean, maybe, maybe it's been awesome for you, and you should be up here doing the teaching. But I suspect, actually, that we can all acknowledge this difficulty. That even if we can admit that our bodies might be a source of wisdom, we aren't always sure what the parameters are or how to find them and hold on to them. And guess what? Those kinds of questions that we have, these questions have an ancient parallel as well. Because there's this interesting section in one of Paul's letters to his friends in the ancient city of Corinth. A section that might help us unpack who makes the rules. See, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it becomes clear that Paul has heard about some things happening. Some of these people have been trying to form wisdom for sexual practice by saying things like, I have the right to do anything. And Paul responds to each of these comments that these friends of his have made. He responds with a suggestion of his own. He says to his friends, you think you can do anything? Hmm. You know what, that might be true, but be honest. Not everything is beneficial, right? And then he goes on. You say you have the right to do anything. Okay, Paul says. But isn't it better to not be ruled or controlled by anything? He repeats what they've said to him. You say food for the stomach and stomach for the food and God will destroy them both. And here Paul's friends are using some of that Greek philosophy I mentioned a second ago. They're saying in effect, listen, bro, isn't sex just like food? Our bodies need it. They're made for it. And isn't God just going to destroy our bodies anyways? So what I do with my body, it's no big deal, right? And Paul responds. He says, well, no, actually. 
The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for God and God for the body, Paul says to his friends. And here, Paul's just affirming a central Christian doctrine. The notion that our bodies aren't meaningless. That Christ's life and death and resurrection in a body, this tells us something about how much God values bodies and restores bodies. Now, a couple quick things to note here in this Pauline text. First, the Greek term that Paul uses for sexual immorality here. This is actually a common word in the vocabulary of the ancient world, and it often just referred to prostitution or to illicit or unallowed sexual practices. And the larger passage actually suggests that some of the men in this Christian community were continuing to frequent temples and establishments where they could have sex with women that they were not committed to. Women who, in many cases, had no control over their own bodies. And it was this practice that was also completely normal in that culture for men of status. And when we pair that knowledge with a second observation, that Paul doesn't seem to anywhere in these verses scold these men for betraying their marriages, we realize that what we have here isn't an instance of Paul making some rules for some people. This is an attempt and an encouragement to be wise. Paul says, sure, you can do anything that you want. You're allowed to in some cases. But are those things best? Are they beneficial to you, for your family, to your community? There's another thing to note here, though, too, beyond those questions. See, some biblical scholars believe that this conversation that Paul's having with his friends, it's actually a bit of an argument between two philosophical positions. On one hand, you have these men in Corinth, men of position and power. They seem to be influenced by this Greek philosophy tradition called Sophism, which was a Greek school that taught men in the culture to be skilled and to be respectable. And along the way, it reinforced the structures of power that supported the ruling classes and the nobility. So when they're defending their sexual rights to Paul, saying we can do anything, they did so from a place of feeling entitled. And even in some cases, they felt that they were virtuous and moral. To which Paul seems to be replying from this perspective of what we call the Stoic school, which is a Greek tradition that taught its followers to pursue contentment. It taught them to not be controlled by any pleasure, to respect and to care and seek justice for everyone. Meaning that, I don't know if you can see this, meaning that in some small measure, Paul is using the wisdom of his day, not just the scriptures, to challenge his friends and his community members, which is a practice that I think might help us as we try to discern who sets the boundaries for our bodies. Where if you don't already, you might seek the insights of a patient therapist or some discerning friends as you pursue intimate relationships. Or maybe you need to lean into some of the research that's being done by psychologists and other practitioners that's looking at how we form healthy and strong sexual bonds as human beings. We can all learn to be better in this area. 
And I wanted to quickly, I was going to show you a picture, but I want to quickly recommend somebody to you, Esther Perel, who speaks so poignantly to how our bodies and our affections change over time. She has a couple of best-selling books. She also talks about how in a time when so many relationship practices are changing as our cultures shift and change, she encourages us to be more honest and communicative and committed for each other than ever before. And I think this is such profound wisdom for the time we live in. Or perhaps you need to venture out with some care and some self-awareness into the host of resources that help each of us to know our bodies, to know their pleasures, to explore the nuances that our bodies provide, and also to explore those of our partner or those of our future partners or prospective partners. Because when we do this, we build a base of wisdom that both affirms your freedom, but it also affirms Paul's suggestion to his friends that it's important to consider what's beneficial to. And before we move on, I want to say one more quick thing about this quickly. For those of you who, in your story, you've been told what's right and what's appropriate and what's allowed, and you've been told this by people who look like me or present like me, cisgendered, white, dude, straight, People who so often are responsible for sexual pain and violence and control in our world, while then, coincidentally, they're also profoundly connected to shaping our conversations about sexual guidelines a lot of the time. And sometimes those things don't come together. If that's part of your story, I want to encourage you to find kind and kindred voices to shape your wisdom of how to make the rules where the tender voice of the divine might come to you and restore and empower you for the future through some different sources than you've heard and seen and known before. And if you are looking for a place to start, can I humbly suggest that you listen to our very own Bobby Sockold's podcast between Sundays and specifically her conversation with photographer Elise Bouvier. Came out right around Christmas, and in this chat that they have, it affirms the soulful work of journeying with God in our bodies, but it does so from a perspective that many of us might find revelatory and profound, and I found it to be transforming and vulnerable and desperately needed in a community like ours. I promise you, you won't regret that. Which brings us nearly to the end of all this body talk. In this discussion of what it means for us to consider how we are both spiritual and sexual beings, finding freedom and light that we need along the way. And for as much as Christian groups and systems have tried to help and guide and often control the sexual lives of adherents, you know what? It is surprising how little Jesus' followers remembered him talking about sex. But before we're done today, we're going to revisit one of those times that he actually did. And for this, we return to Jesus' famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and to a passage that we didn't really get into when we spent some time in the Sermon on the Mount this fall. And here, Jesus is giving a series of comparative teachings. He's telling his followers that while they might have heard some moral axioms about their bodies before, this new movement that he was starting in the world, it was going to be committed to something more than those axioms. It was going to be committed to a better way in the world. And in one instance, Jesus said this. He said, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. 
But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. And it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And right off the top, again, it's important to know the ways that ancient language speaks to men and speaks of women. We really do need to admit that any of us, regardless of gender, orientation, or persuasion, we, we stand to learn something from Jesus' teaching, regardless of how the pronouns fit in the text. Because Jesus is after something in this text. And it's not really about how to or how not to have sex. Jesus says, listen, Way back in the Hebrew Bible, it was said, in the sixth of the Ten Commandments, you heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. And everybody in the crowd is thinking, yep, we've heard that, check. Then he keeps on going. He says, but I tell you that anybody who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in their heart. And there is something curious happening in the translations here. See, because the Greek word translated as lust in English in this verse, the verb epithumeo, it's super common word in the Christian scriptures. The catch is that it almost never has anything to do with sex. Most of the time, this verb is more in line with the Ten Commandments and the English word that we translate as covet which is used in the passage that Jesus is quoting from, where we read, you shall not covet, epithumeo, your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male or female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Which just means that Jesus is getting at something more than looking at someone and having sexual thoughts. I mean, that happens. Our imaginations construct all kinds of scenarios in which we end up with other people. But our bodies aren't the problem when that's happening. And beauty isn't the problem. And our longing isn't even really the problem there. And you know what? I'm not even sure Jesus is concerned that we have imaginations. No, I think if we look closely, we see that he's getting at something completely different here. He seems to be concerned with how, if we aren't careful, we start to look at other people's bodies. And we start to look at people as things that we can acquire and as products that we can use. We start to look at them as places where we might feel safe and whole and significant with them. And this happens in so many ways in our world, like how we objectify bodies in our pornography, how we idolize certain body shapes and sizes to be replicated and then we mock and we shame others. How we look at other people's relationships all the time and we imagine them as perfect or better and we think of that as being what we deserve and we imagine ourselves into their world knowing nothing about it. How so often we use others' bodies for comfort and for affection selfishly, even if it's not sexual. And the point of Jesus' warning is then that sometimes it's just easier to imagine each other as objects, and someone's body as a thing. And in saying this to us, Jesus stands in solidarity with the wisdom of the Song of Songs, because Jesus knows that bodies are good. Jesus knows that bodies are beautiful, and that we experience them with all of our senses as a part of being in God's divine creation. 
And he also offers wisdom that informs rule suggestions like we see Paul giving to his friends, where Jesus seems to be encouraging us to respect and seek what's beneficial for others in all of our sexual practice. And this is wisdom that ultimately can come back to us. Because I'm not so sure Jesus wants us to be gouging out our eyes or cutting off our hands when they fail us. But Jesus is reminding us that we do these things figuratively when we're careless when, with our affections. And when we get busy pursuing our passions, which so then so quickly become our rights, if we don't pay attention. And when that happens to us, when our passions become our rights and what we deserve, that's when we wound and we dismember each other. And this happens too when we neglect Jesus' teaching from this very same sermon when he told his friends to love each other like you love yourself. See, because that's where I think our imaginations take on their greatest power. When with intentional work in our brains and our souls and our bodies, we choose to respect ourselves and we care for others and we come to see our sexuality as good and as holy and as a reflection of God's profound creativity and we offer that in our own way to those we love. And I hope that this is work that you're encouraged to take up again and heal in again slowly and carefully, maybe even today, trusting that God works in each intimate moment we create to tell a story of fullness and freedom and restoration. Let's pray. Loving God, God of our brains and our souls and our bodies, We confess our need today, that we need our thinking to change, we need our senses to change. Even as we lean into this commitment to do the soulful work in this area of our lives, in the ways that we live with and in and through our bodies each and every day, and even as we pray now, I'm aware that in this room there are so many stories and we are such complex beings, and this can be a source of so much in us. It can be a source of joy and satisfaction, but there's also sorrow and regret, and even neglect or loneliness or confusion, which is why we carefully hold these moments and we ask, would you be our source and would you give us courage as we choose to trust our bodies as a source of wisdom for us? And that you would help us as we discern and as we let your spirit guide us, as we seek out wisdom in the world that's sound and healthy and beneficial and intended for our flourishing. And would you grant us strength as we live with an imagination for ourselves as spiritual beings and as sexual beings with this idea of divine imagination guiding us as we love each other. These things we hold and we ask and we carry now with us. In the name of Christ, our hope, now and always. Amen.